Well, today is the Sunday that we historically set aside to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah. And if you were expecting colorful plastic eggs and fluffy bunnies, although there are some floating around here, I guess, today, uh, that's just misinformation. I don't have, I don't personally have any of those. And just as in December we observe this celeb- and celebrate the birthday of Jesus, around this time of year we recognize his death and resurrection. We celebrate it. Now, there's no Christianity without the resurrection. I've covered this in many a message here at Veroqua Nazarene, especially on Easter Sunday. But today, I like to shift our expectation for focusing on Jesus' resurrection and really begin to look at how it impacts our life here and now. And just like anything that the Bible teaches, people either believe it or they don't. And I hope that you've come with an open heart and open mind today. Because if you believe that Jesus has forgiven you of your sin and he gives you new life, you know, there, there was and is a physical resurrection, but there's a spiritual resurrection. It's one that we wrestle with in our day-to-day life, this new life. So again, our first passage is in Matthew chapter 27, and it starts at verse 51. And while you're finding that passage either on your, in your Bible or on your smartphone, let me give you a tour of what's happened prior to verse 51. You see, Jesus is on the cross. He's between two thieves or rebels, depending on your translation. One of them mocks Jesus, and the other humbly puts his faith in Jesus. Jesus assures the second man of paradise with him. And Jesus then is continuing to die and suffer on the cross. He cries out a few times. Soldiers in charge of his execution bring him a sponge soaked with wine vinegar and offer it to him. Jesus cries aloud one last time. That's probably the biggest cry of anguish the world had ever heard. Then he gives up his spirit. Then the Son of God dies. Pastor Matt, you're probably thinking, I don't know if you remember this, but this is called Resurrection Sunday, not Good Friday. Okay, okay. I know, I know, I know, I know. But this message, this, these verses, will turn into a resurrection story very quickly. And not in the kind that you're expecting. Not in the three days later style of resurrection story. Believe it or not. It comes right away. When we look at verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Just to give you a heads up, that was in the English Standard Version. Typically, I read out of the NIV but I like the way that they phrase some of those things there. They reflected on that. Truly, this is the Son of God. What we hear here is the death of the Son of God, and what we see is that it sent shockwaves into the physical realities of our world. The curtain in the temple, supposed to separate the people from the Holy of Holies. The only one who could go in there was the priest, the high priest, and only once a year. 
it was torn in two. We don't, we, we just hear that it was torn. We don't hear who tore it, just that it was torn. An earthquake that split rocks. And, and speaking of rocks, there was tombs. And these tombs were more cave-like in nature than hole-in-the-ground graves that we see mostly today. So those tombs got open. And whatever was covering that interest, entrance that might have protected the bodies were cracked or moved out of the way. It seems kind of strange unless you continue reading, but the tombs were now escapable from the inside. It's a good thing because the bodies of the saints who had died, you no, know, those who were buried and placed in those tombs, were raised to life. And now it's that last part where I've always struggled with this part of the story. Maybe you caught it. I surely didn't because I've got to ask you this question. Have you ever read a scripture, maybe over and over and over again, and you form such a clear picture of what is going on in that passage that you always think of that image, you always think of that picture. Maybe you associate it with a movie you saw of Jesus or, or the disciples, and that's always what you see. And then suddenly one day you hear a sermon or you are part of a Bible study and it makes you reevaluate that image that you have in your mind. Well, that's what happened to me. You see, let me show you my mistake. My mistake is that I read through this passage and usually do way too quickly and picture it like this. Jesus dies. All those powerful things happen. The saints are raised and go out into the city appearing to many people. Yes, yes, not yet. You see, the way the scripture actually reads, it says that only after Jesus was raised did they leave their tombs and go into the city. Mind blown. I mean, seriously, when I read over that, I was just like, I have been misreading this. I have been picturing something different for the longest time. And I've referenced it. I looked at multiple different translations of this just to make sure that I wasn't reading the wrong version. By the way, they all talk about after. This word meta in Greek. And it, and it really says, after Jesus was raised, do they leave their tombs and go into the city? So it made me go to a really weird place where I start asking questions. It's a great place to, to start when you're Bible staying by yourself is what? What happened? Why didn't they leave their tombs? Were they stuck in there? Were they resurrected but not maybe strong enough to move around? Were they super confused? Well, not likely. We don't know. And maybe. <laughs> we don't actually have any stories of these saints, these people from Scripture that left these tombs and went and showed themselves. We, don't, we just have this reference to them and what had happened, that they showed themselves to many people. We don't have name and numbers and addresses. But it was this idea that made me think, hmm, how does this apply to our spiritual walk? This resurrected life. Resurrected from the dead. Much like these folks sat in their tombs, we're given new life in Jesus Christ or our fresh start as we say here. But sometimes when we start this new walk with Jesus, a few things might start to happen pretty quickly. We might feel trapped. Two places we could feel trapped are inside the church and outside the church. 
I'll unpack that here in a minute, but we might feel trapped. Did they feel trapped? I don't know. But we might feel trapped, and there is a solution for that. We might be confused. Might wonder what's going on in my life. Things aren't the same. Yes, I've got this new life in Jesus, but all this other stuff is not adding up. I'm confused. How do I deal? What if I scare people? What if I say something wrong? Break up a relationship. Maybe we feel weak, like we can't overcome temptation. Oh, the preacher said that we're supposed to overcome sin, but I don't know how to do that because it keeps coming at me. And I must be weak. I'm not a good enough Christian. You've probably heard that expression before. Maybe you thought it about yourself. There's a solution for that as well. And it's these three ideas that I want to explore in today's message. The resurrection of Jesus means the resurrection of us, but will we stay in our tombs, feeling trapped, confused, and weak? Or will we find our way into the light? Let's look at feeling trapped. Perhaps no one has ever, and I hope not, but no one has ever tied you up in a straitjacket before. I mean, raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, But certainly professional illusionists like David Copperfield or Penn and Teller would have certainly employed this device. It constrains your hands and your arms and you can't move them. And now, of course, if you or I were put into one, it probably wasn't our choice. But the illusionists, however, they get all tied up for a reason. You see, they know how to escape. They know how to get out. And they are exactly where they want to be. They know how to get out quickly. They have the power. And all the while, they make us believe that they don't. And maybe that's the trick. But believe it or not, some Christians have a tendency to feel trapped. And there are two places that I identify that Christians might feel trapped. One is inside the church and one is outside the church. And I don't mean just the building, but it's the easiest way for us to contemplate it. So go with me here on this, and if you can't follow, I've got a couple more points in the sermon that maybe you can. If you are on fire for Christ, he's speaking personally to you. You're growing in your faith, and you're passionate about telling the world about this new life that you have in him. Chances are the trapping happens inside these walls. See, I grew up in church. I'm only 38, but I've been hurt by Christians. I have seen others hurt by Christians, and I am sure that I have unfortunately hurt others as well. The expression still stands, hurt people hurt people. All within the context of the local church, the local gathering. Unless you're new to the faith, you've probably experienced one or more of these hurts in your lifetime. It's hard to love each other like Jesus taught, It's hard to trust one another when trust has been lost. And when we are in between worship gatherings and group study times, we don't really hold non-Christians in our life to that kind of standard. It'd kind of be ridiculous, right? They don't spiritually frustrate us when they act sinfully because it's in their nature. But born-again, faith-professing believers? Come on. It's like the old parenting saying that's still not very helpful You know better than that. (laughs) Still not helpful. Christians, we hurt each other. 
The hurt causes us to feel trapped. We can't wait until noon when the service is over. Maybe we're, why, and I always wonder why they come. Well, religious obligation is one, tradition is another. But if they're just waiting for 12 o'clock to come, to get out, they don't want to have anybody ask about their issues because they don't feel like talking about it. When we feel trapped, we look for an escape. We look out, uh, we, we, a way out of that straitjacket. We look for the light at the end of the tunnel. Then there's folks who find our time together to be quite peaceful in a peaceful experience. They escape the frustrations and worries of the hurt and anger of the day-to-day life. It's truly escapism, if you will. Uh, they saturate in worship, hearing and reading the scriptures, singing songs, caring not that they're even in tune, and fellowshipping with other Christians, lingering in the presence of God and his children during the weekly gatherings. But inevitably, people start to leave. Someone has to turn off the lights. Time for gathering on this day to be done. Time to head back to the grind. When we were at the worship gathering, we felt more like ourselves. Now we just do what we can to survive. Whether it's the stress of your work, the expectations of your family, or the bombardment of temptations surrounding you, you just want to get out to escape. I wonder if the resurrected people felt trapped in their tombs. Is that why they didn't come out sooner? Again, we can't know this for sure, but if they woke up in their tombs, even if the door to the tomb was open, which we have evidence from Scripture it was, would they really be able to get out? Why do I say that? Well, to use another analogy, it's much like prison. Take away a person's hope of ever getting out. If you can break their will, you don't need to lock the cell. They're already trapped. But thankfully, for those resurrected saints, something changed, and they did head for the light, finding the doorway open wide. find out what that is here in a little bit. But we're going to look at confusion and trust next. I still ask the question, I wonder, why didn't they come out of those tombs? And again, I can only speculate that I would have felt pretty weird. I mean, think about it. You wake up wrapped in cloths from head to toe, lying on a cold stone table. Tombs at those times, at that time, had one central area for the most recently deceased. Uh, Then, after the body decays, the bones would be collected up and placed in a container of some sort and then tucked into a small, like, shelf space surrounding the stone table. So, needless to say, it's not an experience any of us would be prepared for dealing with. I'd liken it to waking up in a morgue, much to the medical examiner's surprise. The confusion that they must have felt can be reflected in the confusion we may have in our new life in Christ. We are radically changed by his power, but to the outside world, we look the same. You've heard me say this before, but new believers are some of the most effective evangelists, or at the very least, excitable inviters. Discovering your faith, your fresh start in Jesus Christ is something that you can't keep to yourself. You've got to share it and live it. 
The connections that a new believer has to their previous life helps to facilitate bringing more lost people to Jesus. That all sounds great, but where does the confusion lie? Well, if you're a go-getter, in-your-face, take-no-prisoners type of personality, well, this, might, this part might not apply. But for those of us who have a tendency to overanalyze things, to think things too much through before we do, we're concerned with people's potential reactions if I say this and that, it might be tempting to tread lightly. We might think, what if, what if I do it wrong? What if it ruins my friendship, my family, my marriage? Well, let's pause for a moment. Let's look at that last one, marriage, that last scenario. The Bible says something on this topic, and it may help boost our trust in God that he's going to work the whole thing out. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her, her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would, have, would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the believer leaves... Let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. The plan, my friends, the plan is not that faith in Jesus would separate people, but rather bring them together. In this case, a husband and a wife have made a covenant, marriage vows, The direction that Paul gives the Corinthians specifically and us generally is that relationship ought to be preserved because it actually benefits the unbeliever. They may yet come to the Lord, but if this life life changes too much for them, then the unbeliever leaves, breaking the marriage vows. The believer isn't responsible for that. We might be able to transfer this into our other relationships, keeping, keeping a friend, the brother or sister, family, coworker, neighbor, if they cut off the relationship because you pray for them or share the gospel with them or invite them to a church event, that's not on you. You don't need to be confused. You are not responsible for how another person will respond to you. You and I are responsible to obey God as he's given this new life that we should share with all people trusting God to work things out in the end. And that brings us to our third piece here, weakness and power. My question to you about this is, do you set an alarm in the morning when you get up? Raise your hand if you set an alarm to get up in the morning. Set an alarm. You are the alarm, Kaylee, are you? Oh, you set an alarm? Okay. If you set an alarm in the morning to make sure that you get up at a certain time, when that alarm goes off, after you've smacked the snooze button a few times, like me, or frantically tap your smartphone to turn it off, do you feel refreshed? No. 
I mean, I hope so. And every night before bed, our family prays together. And one of the regular things that we pray is for a good night's sleep or something to that effect. And I wonder if my prayers would be more effective if I was just more specific. Oh, Lord, I pray that I'm refreshed and ready to go in the morning, not feeling exhausted or tired in the least. Or some flowery words like that, right? And yes, it probably shouldn't surprise you, especially since you've sat through most of this sermon already. I do see that most of you are awake today. (laughs) That uh, when it's this pastor's turn to say the prayer at nighttime, uh, it can turn into a mini-sermon, which then causes little children to fall asleep where they sit a little bit. I don't hear you volunteering. Anyway, but even when I pray those things, I don't always feel refreshed in the morning. I mean, do you? So we hit the snooze, we roll over, and we try to get about eight more minutes of sleep before the alarm goes off again. I wonder, did those resurrected people not come out of the tomb sooner because they lacked the power or energy? Sometimes we don't have the energy or power to get up. Did they? I don't know. I can't be sure. But I do look at the new life in Christ. We have that alarm kind of setting. When we're brand new, fresh, it's like an alarm going off. I've got to tell my friends, I've got this urgency that I know right now I've got to deal with. And for a season, we have this this great wake-up energy. We experience victory in some areas of our lives. But soon we discover that the changing to this new life, we discover some things that are challenging. And we think, hmm, God wants me to stop this? Are, come, I, I don't want to stop this. Are you sure he requires me to stop this, whatever this is? Give up that destructive behavior or attitude? I, I don't think he, if Jesus really loved me, I wouldn't have to do that. But that's when our old life and our new life clash. We feel drained at the prospect of putting up a fight. Fighting temptation can be exhausting. And tired Christians say platitudes like this. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. When I hear that that platitude, well, it sounds to me like they're stuck in the mire of sin still. Like a drowning person who believes that they are safe somewhere rather than repeatedly sinking beneath the waves, which is what they are. Christians of all strides may struggle with feeling inadequate to stand up to temptation, but God's word says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The word endure has never been synonymous with giving into. In the New Testament, endure or hypophero means to sustain or bear up under. If you've ever watched weightlifting, and I, don't, I didn't bring anything super heavy, but we'll just, we'll just pretend that this is a super heavy you've ever watched weightlifting and you've seen them have those big barbells they pick up from the bottom and do these cleans, the, the image of enduring, they use the word endurance in sports, is to bear under that pressure. Think about how terrible it would be if that barbell 
that, that weight fell down on the athlete. It does happen sometimes. When you are enduring something, it doesn't crush you. It doesn't defeat you. In fact, the very act of enduring the temptation puts the temptation in its place. You might wonder, can I get, just get there by sheer willpower? No. You and I need all the help we can get. So God enlisted the best helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to empower us to say no to sin. I said it again. The Holy Spirit is there to empower us to say no to sin. We believe it, Nazarenes. It is possible. You can live a life fully devoted to God and saying no to temptation. It's one of the key teachings that we teach in this church. It's one of the defining factors. And we'll talk about it more later on a different Sunday, I promise. And the question is how? Well, it's the Holy Spirit's power living in you. Let's bounce back to the tombs in Matthew 27. Jesus died and people came alive. That's interesting. They were resurrected. Jesus is buried in a tomb, stone rolled in front of the entrance. And by the way, it was a new tomb. We know that from scripture. So there were no other ancestral bones occupying it. And there he lay until that morning when he was resurrected. It's that resurrection power, I'd suggest, that empowered the formerly deceased to appear to many in the holy city. We can live a new life, a fresh start, and it doesn't have to be the same old, same old. We can, uh, hypofero, we can endure with the power of the Holy Spirit. As we conclude today's message, I want to point out something. I do realize the main part of this message has been speculative examples. That's not typical of a message, and I understand that. Though, why didn't they come out sooner? It's okay to use your imagination as you get into God's word. It does need to be grounded in reality, but for certain, here's what we know. Their resurrection, these saints, was a direct result of Christ's crucifixion. That's that's the first thing we know. And then they left after the time of his resurrection. These two events defined what they did, came alive and got active. It's super important that just like when I formed my own, in my own imagination, that the saints left their graves as soon as they came alive, that's not what the Bible actually says. And we want to be careful about things like this because it's easy to, uh, it can easily become what we believe about the Bible to rather say than what the Bible actually says. If we're not careful, the misreadings can solidify in our mind and become more gospel than the gospel. And that's why we should be reading the Bible not just by ourselves, but in community, listening to sermons and small groups, learning from each other our experiences. Those Christians who have gone long before and reading them and their commentaries, reflecting on those things. And if I had been studying with others, it might not have taken me this long to come to this epiphany. Echoing back to those tombs, 
There were saints who were raised when Christ died. Do they feel trapped? They couldn't leave their tombs even if, they, even if the door was wide open. They had died. How was this even happening, they thought. The question for you and I, do you feel trapped? Whether inside the church or out, one of them feels like home, whichever one that is, and the other one feels like a foreign planet that you're trying to leave. Are you trapped with no hope? Head for the light. The light of the hope in Jesus. He saves you and you can overcome the worries and troubles of this world inside the community of believers and outside. Head for the light. Did those saints get confused waking up in that grave? Are you confused? Have you been confused? Were you worried about how you might share your faith? Well, being confused is the opposite. The opposite of confusion is clarity. And clarity comes from trusting in the one who is faithful to teach and guide you. Your steps, your world, your actions, trust. He will give reassurance so you don't have to wonder, is he really doing anything? He is. Don't get confused. Just trust God. And the question, did did the saints hit the snooze in the tomb? Were they too weak to get going? Well, we don't know. But we do know that when our faith is tested, we might show ourselves to be weak. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, in that verse, Paul latched onto the word of Christ. When he felt inadequate, unable to overcome something in his life, the solution was the power of Jesus Christ. And you and I can have that same power. We can stand up under it. We can endure. We can rebuff temptation and live a life totally devoted to God. Friends, we've got to head toward the light, trust God for clarity, and believe and receive his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. Jesus, we are so thankful and grateful for your resurrection power. One, that your death can bring life and did in this situation for these saints that were resurrected. And your resurrection brought motivation for them to go out and show themselves as a testimony in the holy city to the people there. How amazing, how probably terrifying for many people this must have been. But Lord, our walk, our fresh start in you, Lord, is not all easy street. And when we have a new believer that we are walking alongside, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be patient and kind and understanding, to remember what it was like when we first started walking with you, to help and be there as a support for them, to pray people into the kingdom, Lord, 
that we have perhaps passively written off. And to ask constantly for your power, Holy Spirit, to enable us to live the life that says, I can say no to temptation because the Holy Spirit has empowered me to do so. Lord, we believe it and we live it today and we thank you for our fresh start in you, Jesus. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. You're dismissed, go in peace. Happy Easter, my friends.